Hey guys, what's up? It's Greg Shrozavosti with the Find Your Film Podcast. This is episode 171. For this particular podcast, I have two sets of interviews conducted by co-host Eric Holmes. First up is Bodica, Queen of War. He interviewed writer-director Jesse P. Johnson. The movie is out today as of this recording. It's out in theaters. It's available on demand on digital. If you use Amazon or whatever as a platform, you can actually rent-purchase this title and we'll receive a commission, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll leave all that stuff in the show notes where you can purchase or rent Bodica Queen of War because in my opinion, it is definitely worth a rental or even a purchase. I'm a huge Jesse V. Johnson fan because, and thanks to Eric Holmes, because about three, four years ago, he recommended a movie called Avengement starring Scott Adkins. I saw it. I ended up interviewing Jesse V. Johnson, I believe. Did I? No, I did not. Did I? Yeah, I did interview Jesse V. Johnson for Avengement. And then I would interview him again a year or two later for a really great movie he did called Hell Hath No Fury. So both of these movies, Hell Hath No Fury and Avengement, really threw me for a loop because they weren't your studio studio driven films. They really felt like they came from a director who knew how to use his budget correctly and get the most out of its actors and out of his budget and locations and whatnot. Avengement, great drama with action. Excellent film. Hell, Hell Hath No Fury, also great action. Great World War II um, film. And it's really interesting film as well. So both of them really good. Bodica Queen of War, very ambitious film. Probably not. Definitely not 100 to $150 million. Because this is one of these Ridley Scott type of movies it could have been a Ridley Scott-directed film, maybe being released by Disney or the 20th Century Fox or not. But it's, he did, he did, Jesse V. Johnson did not have that money for this, and he makes do with whatever budget he had for Bodega Queen of War. It is headlined by Olga Kurlenko. He previously worked with her in the movie White Elephant. I have not seen that movie yet. I think it came out about a year or two ago. But Bodega Queen of War is inspired by true events, and Bodega is a warrior queen whose husband, played by Clive Standen, is slain by the Romans in an act of betrayal. And what she does, the rest of her story is to seek vengeance, revenge against the people who murdered her husband and really change her life for the worse. So before Bodica was a warrior queen, she was just a beautiful queen raising their family out, out in their domicile, in their community. But things change once the Romans take over and the movie centers on Bodica's quest for revenge and how she is transformed from a a beautiful woman of royalty and responsibility to a warrior queen or in this case of the title queen of war. I really okay, here's the thing. I said this on the cinematics review. First hour is world building. You get a lot of story behind what goes on with with Bodica's psyche and the betrayal and just her people and the Romans, etc. And that's good. All good storyline. But the last 35 minutes, 35 to 37 minutes, most of it is just pure. It's pure war, fighting, bloodshed, and it's very visceral action. And as Eric Holmes alludes in the interview, Jesse V. Johnson is an experienced, he's an experienced action director, and he uses that element into Bodico Queen of War. So the movie works as a drama, as a showcase piece for Olga Kurlenko. If you like her as an actress, which I do. This is just a plum role for her. And it works on a visceral, 
bloody, just violent level. If you want some of that kind of testosterone-driven, war-driven stuff, you're going to get it with Boudicca, Queen of War. The only thing is, if you're just looking for wall-to-wall action, you're not going to get it, which I'm glad that wasn't part of Boudicca, Queen of War. I'm glad there was a lot of story to go along with it too. And during the interview, Johnson talks about how he does not want to really follow the crowd and he doesn't want to do a movie straight out of the zeitgeist. Like he wouldn't do a Matrix copycat once the Matrix say was out. Or he doesn't want to do a John Wick film because that John Wick type thing is popular these days. He wants, he does not follow, quote, the zeitgeist. He wants to follow the beat of his own drum. And that's why, my opinion, when you look at movies like Avengement, then you go to Hell Hath No Fury and Bodica Queen of War. And between that, there are a bunch of movies he's done too, maybe several movies he's done as well. They're all different from one another. And he doesn't seem to copy himself from one movie to the next. Completely different. He did um, Dead Collectors, which I also saw and I enjoyed. So he, he has a really interesting resume. And he reminds me of a lot of filmmakers from the past who would just not actually depend on a certain, go back to the creative well for to do a, a movie that one movie was a hit from theirs. Maybe they they try to recopy it again. He's a person who challenges himself from film to film. When I interviewed him, I think it was for Hell Hath No Fury. He had a poster of Point Blank, and it's a, this is a movie directed by John Borman, starring Lee Marvin, and it's a great L.A. neo noir existential drama thriller that you definitely need to see Point Break. Amazing. I really love it. And I believe it's a poster. And the bottom line is that director, John Borman, his movies were movies where within every project, they were completely different from one another. So I never asked Johnson about that, about his own connection to Borman. Maybe he likes Borman's diversity and creative diversity. And maybe he's actually, that influences him today as a filmmaker. Who knows? But anyways, that is the first interview, Jesse V. Johnson with Eric Holmes. The second interview is very interesting. This one came out a couple of weeks ago, and I was dragging my feet on, in uploading because, and I apologize, this is a little bit late, but if you have HBO or Max, Navajo Police Class 57, limited series, three episodes, getting a lot of really great reviews, a lot of just really interesting comments on our YouTube video about it. So there were some people who actually, I think there was someone who said that they actually worked within that academy or whatnot. But the documentary, it's a three-part docuseries that, quote, follows a group of recruits as they fight their way through the Navajo Police Training Academy and out onto the field. So I haven't seen it yet. And when Eric time of Eric doing the interview, he'd only seen about an episode and a half. He liked what he saw, and he relays that to the three filmmakers who are interviewed for Navajo Police Class 57. And they are Alex Jablonski, David Nordstrom, and Khalil Hudson. All of these filmmakers are Emmy Award winning directors, so a lot of cachet there. And yeah, it might be hard to figure out who's who when you listen to the actual interview, but the most important thing is it's a interesting interview and hopefully it will give you the inspiration to give Navajo Police Class 57 that docuseries a shot. Again, it's getting a lot of traction from critics and people who've seen it. So I I haven't seen it yet. I wish I I saw it before actually recording this intro, but heard good things. Eric liked what he saw of Navajo Police Class 57. We both, by the way, love Bodica Queen of War. 
Like I said, Eric's a huge Jesse P. Johnson fan. So am I. And I definitely need to see more of his movies. So, so far, there's no, none of his movies that I've seen I've disliked. So I'm sure he's done maybe, what, 20, 25 movies? I will get back to you on if there's any of his movies that I do not like. But I think the way he shoots his films and his approach, I might like them all. We'll see what happens with that. Finally, I have two Blu-rays to give away for this week, for this episode. It is the Jackie Chan movie, Ride On, courtesy of Wellgo USA Entertainment. To enter, all you need to do is become a member or subscribe to my two YouTube channels, that my Deepest Dream YouTube channel and my Find Your Film YouTube channel, and become a member of a, of my Cinematics Facebook group. Yeah, Cinematics Facebook group, which I am an administrator with my Cinematics co-host, Bruce Perky and Eric Holmes. So Cinematics Facebook group member, uh, you subscribe to my Find Your Film pod, my Find Your Film YouTube channel and my Deepest Dream YouTube channel. So if you do one of these three, you'll get an entry. Just you need to complete one of the three. If you complete all three requirements, you get three entries. I'll have all of that information on the show notes and the link to the giveaway as well. So it's a Jackie Chan movie called Ride On. And currently as we speak, it has a 59% rating from the critics. The audience, however, gave it 79%. So who knows? It might be interesting. It's Jackie Chan and a horse. I think he doesn't want to give away the horse. Yeah, two debt collectors attempt to seize a stunt horse from a former, or it says here, washed up stuntman named Luo, Luo, played by Jackie Chan. And there is a video of Luo and just, I think, either beating up the debt collectors or making them not take away the stunt horse. And this virality of this video leads to the debt collectors trying to seek revenge against the Jackie Chan character. So the genre is action, comedy, and drama, as is most Jackie Chan movies. And it was released on DVD and Blu-ray on October 24th via Wellgo USA Entertainment. And I believe it's also available on digital, too. So more information will be in the show notes. Ride on, Jackie Chan. That should be really cool. And then finally, I'll have another giveaway from Wellgo USA Entertainment the following the following week. So as for Ride On, the Jackie Chan film Ride On, the end date for this will be Friday, November 3rd. Okay, all that stuff will be in the show notes, but enjoy. First up is Borka, Queen of War, filmmaker Jesse V. Johnson. And then after that, you'll get to hear Alex Jablonski, Khalil Hudson, and David Nordstrom talk about Navajo Police Class 57. Thank you guys so much for all your support here on the Find Your Film Podcast. Hit me up if you have any comments, suggestions, et cetera, et cetera, and talk to you guys soon. Okay, bye. So I'm here with Jesse V. Johnson, the writer and director of Boudicca, Queen of War, along with uh, some of my favorites. Uh, We got Hell Hath No Fury, Avengement, uh, the Dead Collector movies. Over the past couple of years, you become quickly become one of my favorite directors. Yesterday was my birthday. So, I, so uh, you know, in preparing for this interview, I was like, sweet. I get to watch a Jesse V. Johnson joint for my birthday. This could not be better. So thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Pleasure. Needless to say, I'm a fan. I guess uh, what we'll start with is the story's awesome. And it's not, it's not one I've heard of before. Why don't we see more of this? Because this is just... This is great. I I could watch a movie, a new movie about this every year. 
Hartnipple. Uh, I, I hate making films that are in the zeitgeist. I don't, I don't want to, if someone makes John Wick, the last thing I want to do is make a film about an assassin killing other assassins. If someone makes The Matrix, I don't want to make a film about a guy in a science fiction film where he can do martial arts. You know, if someone makes, you know, I, I want to go the opposite way to the, the, the rest of the crowd. I think it's very, very important to be subversive like that. Otherwise, the industry is going to die. And I've also liked directors who march to the beat of their own drum. It can be tough because you are making films sometimes that no one is ready for. And like with Avengement, when it came out, I got death threats, you know, for what I'd done with Scott because there wasn't martial arts that there should have been. And then within a year or two, it's become the most popular film that I made. And I get fan mail daily from that film to this to this day, which is crazy as it came out sort of, you know, four years ago. So, you know, there, there are pitfalls to doing things that are slightly different. The more important part of your question is where the idea for this came from. My, my mother, who was a single fiery redhead, you know, who brought up her kids very protectively, uh, took me to the statue when I was a little, a little boy. It's, it's pride of place by the English Houses of Parliament right next to Big Ben. It's the most amazing statue. It's very, very moving. It appears to move as you walk around it. Uh, I used it at the end of the film as a way of punctuating the fact that this sacrifice that she made wasn't for for waste. It wasn't for waste. 2,000 years later, we still have the statue right in the middle of, you know, the most important part of London. She represents everything about England. She's part of the National Anthem of Britannia. It's basically Boudicca. She's on all of our coins. Everything she did and lost and then fought for wasn't for waste. It, it, it ended up being the reason that Nero lost control at the end. His confidence went, and and he was replaced. You know, this this is this is powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. And I think it's the most, you know, one of the most in, incredible stories and and sort of mythology, you know, annexed and joined with the English character in England and, and our nation that you can that that you can find. You know, she was rediscovered in Victorian era in the 1900s to bolster the fact that a female leader, a queen, could be powerful for England because it was a bunch of sexist men at that point. And so you had Queen Victoria. And so they they went through history and they found Boudicca. And that's how her resurgence came. That's how the legend, you know, because she's mentioned, you know, what, what's interesting about her for, for a Celtic warrior, she's mentioned by the Romans by name. Both Tacitus and Cassius Dio, who were, you know, who were writing at the time, mentioned her and her story. So, you know, we know whether there was some exaggeration or not. It's a truthful character that existed in history. You know, the, the Celts didn't write, so they didn't have a form of writing that, as we know it today, but they, you know, drawings and schoolwork, but, but so they didn't have a way of maintaining their own mythology through the dark ages. But we, we have, we, we have been able to read about her. So we knew she existed and they found that. And they use that as a way to uh, propagate the mythology of, of Victoria, you know? and so she's a part of English, English, you know, the English culture, which is which is pretty wonderful. And the fact that no one's really made a good film yet was a challenge, you know. And and so I, I felt after meeting Olga, we had the bare bones necessary to make this, you know. One of the things I love what you did with her in this is not only her character transformation, but her physical transformation. Because typically in movies like this, female warrior wears basically an iron bathing suit. And as Boudicca kind of transforms throughout the movie, she just becomes more like dirty and like her teeth are broken out. She's got the dentures in. I, I mean, see her behind me. She looks like just a straight up barbarian, which for female warrior characters, you don't. No, it, 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 it was a it was a refreshing take, I think. Yeah, they want them want them to look like uh, the Red Sonja character, don't they? Utter load of 
BS, you know, you, you wouldn't wear that because it's un- uncomfortable for a start, but also completely impractical. But the, the fact was, this was not, this is not a film made for male titillation, you know, which those comic book characters are, you know, from Princess Lair to, to Red Sonia, that those were made for teenage boys primarily. You know, now, of course, everyone reads them and it's, it's, it's fine. It's for everyone. But that, but back in the forties, fifties and sixties, that's at the primary market was, was teenage boys. And so they knew that and they created them that manner. This film is not, this film is a noble letter of, appreciation or and and sort of uh, uh you know it's my my idea of of, of a uh, way of telling this story in 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 the highest respectful terms imaginable we we shot the film very close to where Boudicca may have galloped a horse 2000 years ago we were 20 miles from Colchester which is you know the first city that she burned so there's a very good likelihood that she had been around there and because of that that and and for many many other reasons, there was the feeling of responsibility to treat her legend with respect, with with a uh, an honor. And I haven't felt that before. You know, don't rely on on cheap thrills to you know by by visceral you know sort of of shortcuts or exploitation to make this story work. Push hard and find it within the characters, within the dialogue. With you know, it's there. The story's there, and I felt like someone was watching me through the whole thing. You don't often feel that, but dealing with the you know, I think it was dealing with a female character who uh, reminded me in many ways of of my mother. You know, uh, as you know, overbearing and, and, and sort of watching out for her children. You know, and and whatever for whatever reason, it it felt. Like there was a uh, responsibility on this one that I haven't had before. So I wanted to tell the story right, you know. And, and also, I mean, beyond the awesome action, the brutal action, which I think uh, you mentioned earlier, people were giving you death threats over Benjamin, which I just don't get because I, I thought Scott Atkins was great in that. And that his fighting style was like really brutal and visceral, as is uh, Boudicca in this. Like when she goes beast mode on him. <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah, it gets pretty brutal. But then it's it's cut with uh, I don't want to give away anything, but there, it's cut with emotional beats with their family, we'll say. And that works really well in this as well. Yeah, no, it was important for me to show the transition from from mother and queen and wife to warrior, bloodthirsty, fury driven, rage filled and rebel queen, you know, and I needed an actor who could do that and finding Olga was certainly a part of that, but we shot in, you know, as close to chronological order as possible. I knew that I didn't want her to go from queen to the next day being the warrior and the next day being the queen. It was impossible, you know, the, the, the way her body is, the way her hair and everything was. So we shot the first half of the movie with the daughters and with Olga looking as beautiful as we could. I mean, and I don't know if you know much about Roman history, but they had, you know, nail varnish that was brought in from Africa. They they had things make up for the eyes and there was fashions involved with the hair that was changing on a six monthly basis. It was very, very similar to a well, you know, the the, the, the sense of fashion and, and, and keeping up with the Joneses was very similar to how a Beverly Hills wife or any major city would feel in the 21st century. It was very, you know, the, the, even the jewellery is quite similar. You know, you see jewellery and jewellery shops now, which is based on Roman era jewelry and you, you don't even know it it's it's uh you know they came up with a lot of you know a lot of the fashions that we have now and so i knew that there we could create this woman who was not she's not superficial but she her desires in life are very you know are very normal you know she wanted the best for her children she wanted a wonderful relationship with her husband she wanted to make sure she was looked after she wanted to make sure her fashions were 
were up to speed. And if she could find a cheap way of getting great clothing, she, that was something that, that, that fascinated her. She was a normal person by first century standards and by 21st century standards. So that part, that character, I leaned on Olga to let me know how that was. She'd say, well, do you have any notes on that? I'm like, honestly, this is more your cup of tea than it is mine. <laughs> I can give you notes on you know, how the life is hitting your face, but but the character is someone you know far more intimately than I do. And then after this transition, she we knocked her teeth out, her eyebrows are burned off, you know, she has a broken nose, she has scars that are embedded in her. Uh, the hair is wild, absolutely wild. And it's a complete physical transformation she went through as well. The way she walks, the confidence, she walks like a boy, a man, as opposed to walking like a woman. And these are all things that Olga came up with and, and added to this character. I, I had previously painted the two versions and shown them to her when I pitched the film. So she knew that there was this huge transition she was going to go through. But uh, but it was really, really, you know, quite, quite complex and difficult to do and and but i knew more about the second character than she did and and in my opinion i did she i could help her a little bit on that and that's that's where i sort of you know became a little more use as a director (laughs) because i i I, you know know a little bit about desperate characters and so we you know it, it was it was a wonderful wonderful sort of that was what was you know sort of appealing to me about this movie was this this transformation that this woman goes through you know uh beyond the character work in my opinion anyway i, I think you're one of the best action directors working today and you have a extensive stunt background i guess two parts one as a director how does your past working in stunts inform you as a director directing stunts and also what does that look like on the page like when you're writing the script uh how granular do you get within the stunt scenes or do you just say battle ensues and then figure it out uh with the stunt team uh i'll do it very minimally there's nothing i can find more boring than reading a overly described action sequence plus you try and stick to one minute per page as well so if you start describing all the sword fights and the moves and the martial arts or the guns that they're using it takes up too much and it's boring and it's not you know you do screen direction and if there's key beats in there you know so-and-so takes so-and-so down almost winning but loses and you, and you, you leave it fairly open-ended because what you don't want to do is force the choreographer or the second unit director or myself into having to come up with choreography that matches the script too heavily because when you get to the location there may be something wonderful that presents itself you know you know what we'll take them up that cliff and they'll be running down there and they can jump you know and suddenly now you've strayed from you know the script and it gets complicated everyone gets confused and the special effects if you keep it fairly basic and you do that first scout you meet the actors you get their notes and you just feel you build that in the freebies and in the description and you go to the prop master and the makeup people and, and bring them into the fold at that point it can for me it's just worked out logistically a lot smarter to keep it to the bare bones in the script you still have to describe to a degree what's happening if people are getting hurt and who's winning and who proves themselves and whatever but but you don't go into great detail that's that's filmmaking you know, Dagenham, you know, it's like the guys that follow the storyboard exactly. It's just like, it's just not of no interest to me in the slightest. You know, you, it's the, they call it the happy accidents. It's the, you know, it's, it, it's making use of the organic nature of what we do. That's why AI can't take over from a director because most of my influences are not coming from my brain. They're coming from everything around me, what the other actors are doing and what the set looks like. And, you know, what happened last night and the last scene we did, that's, that's where, the influences come from it's corralling all of those into into the work that that is what you know being a worthwhile director for me is you know 
not following some rigid storyboard and copying what's there and moving it around. But that's boring. And I, you know, it's, it's no interest. So that's, you know, and I work very closely with two, on this one, with two people that I'd worked with before with the action department, Luke Lafontaine and, and Dan Stiles, who I'd previously had worked together on Avengement. And then Dan had done One Ranger. Luke had done Hell Hath No Fury. So these are guys I've worked with and who know what I like and how, you know, I want the story to be involved in it. Nothing gratuitous. We talked about the fantasy factor, you know, the 90% reality, 10% fantasy. Don't want to get too deep into the fantasy because, as you note, this is not a superwoman who can defy, you know, logic and physics and jump through the air, you know, in a, in a Superman jump and chop some guy in half. This, this is not who this is. This is a, a person possessed of the same kind of energy that a person has when they have to turn a car over because it's, you know, it's got their children in it. You know, she's that they suddenly find this intestinal fortitude that comes out of adrenaline from somewhere deep in their soul. And they're able to move, move a two ton car. This is what we wanted. It's just like grit and anger and, 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 you know, the fiber of, of, of revenge and hate, you know, not someone who's a super person, you know, who ends up looking beautiful without a hair out of place. This is not what happens to you when, you know, when you, the more people that she kills, the darker and more, you know, a more monstrous she becomes. It's almost as if she feeds off what, you know, her body is dying. The more she feeds off all of this, this violence that she's dishing out, you know? Uh, needless to say, I love the movie. Uh, it comes out in theaters, on demand, and digital uh, as we're recording this Friday, October 27th. Holy crap. A uh, great movie. Congratulations. And again, you, I, I'm a huge fan of yours and look forward to everything you do. And thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the support. I'm here with uh, Khalil Hudson, David Nordstrom, and Alex Jablonski, the directors of Navajo Class, Navajo Police Class 57. What got you started on putting this docu-series together? Well, it started off with a discussion we were having around tribal sovereignty. You know, I think, you know, I was really interested in in finding a topic that kind of could could kind of indirectly talk about um, tribal sovereignty, you know, this idea that uh, Native tribes have a inherent authority to govern themselves. And the Navajo police is the only only department, tribal tribal police department that trains their own officers and, and in, in an act of tribal sovereignty. Right. And so that's kind of where it, where it started. Well, one, one of the things I found, because uh, so I've, I've seen the first episode and half the second episode, uh, I've got the screeners like, but I'll, I'll watch the uh, the rest of the second one and the third one. So I'm kind of curious to see where this goes. But thus far, this seems like a police force that I'm kind of already familiar with. And I was—I don't know if I was expecting like a different approach to law enforcement. Is there anything to come that comes of that? Or is this kind of this is what humans are capable of uh, when it comes to law enforcement? When you said you're expecting something different, what do you mean? Also, based on the the limited history I know of uh, Navajo and all sorts of native tribes, a lot of law enforcement was instrumental in pushing them back, constantly holding them down. So I figure, hey, we're gonna we're gonna come up with our own law enforcement. We're gonna rise above that, do some try something different. And so far in the first episode, a lot of what I've seen was a bunch of similar behavior, military kind of like training that you would see and any other police force. And there's not much in the way of like psychological training, such as like de-escalating situations, stuff like that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that you see that later. I also think that what we get into is, and what makes it so unique, is that because it is Navajos policing Navajos, and they are within the, you know, living within the community that they police, their relationship to the community is entirely different. You know, they're beginning, you know, at a time where they, at times, are even arresting or responding to calls with their relatives. And so you have a kind of different approach to begin with from the moment that you step out of the police unit. So while it might look the same in terms of you got a badge, you've got a gun, I think that at its core, the way that you relate to the people you're policing is very different. Yeah. What What are some of the differences that uh, you've seen that may uh, either show up later on in an episode or maybe that didn't quite make the cut that uh, you've seen that um, as far as like training and just uh, policing in general? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's like how you respond to a call. Like if um, you hop out of the car and your idea is that the way you respond to a call is with an arrest, then that is, you know, a kind of Western idea of policing. I think that if you hop out of the unit and your thinking is I'm here to bring balance to the situation, I'm here to bring, you know, to restore harmony, for lack of a better term, then I think that's a much more indigenous Navajo way of policing. And I think that you do see that you see a desire to kind of, okay, what does it take to restore balance to this situation as opposed to who can I throw in the back of the unit? I would just add that the, that a huge part of the, the series is exploring that the tension between what you've identified is it's and what Alex is, is uh, uh, talking about. It's, it's, it's a tension between a sort of westernized approach to policing and what the original sort of Navajo vision for what a, a peacemaker or, or a, a warrior guardian looks like. Yeah. And also having not, not finished the series yet, it, it does feel like, uh, feels like it could, uh, be expanded upon because, you know, with, as with any sort of government agency or anything like this, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, Little ins and outs that you can always explore. Is there any uh, any plans on kind of expanding this further? That that is not up to us. No. <laughs> if it were up to you, no. Just yeah. I mean, I think that there's there's a, there's a million interesting stories to be told out there using policing as the keyhole to get to these other issues. Absolutely. I, I also noticed, like uh, looking at your IMDb credits, uh, all three of you are all over the place as far as the writer, director, editor, producer, and the fact that the three of you are directing this simultaneously. First of all, how how does that workflow work? And also, how do you bring in the other filmmaking aspects that you're familiar with into directing and working together? Yeah. Well, all, all three of us um, worked on our, um, uh, well, um, Alex and I directed a film called Wildland about wildland firefighters. Um, that Dave uh, worked on as well. So, you know, our last project, we worked together. We kind of broke up the the duties. Um, you know, we, we shot for 123 days. You know, when you're out there that long, you know, it's it's really difficult, especially when you're working, you know, 16-hour <laughs> hour days, you're in the cruiser, in and out of the cruiser, in and out of people's homes. And so, you know, Alex and I often would, sometimes we were out there together. Sometimes we would, we'd tag team. Dave was out there for the first couple months as well. And then Dave uh, headed back uh, and, and um, kind of led the, the post team. Um, he and Ariel Kilker um, uh, were the lead editors um, as well. And as producers, NEPs. Uh, that, that's kind of how we, we, we split it up. I mean, um, Dave would kind of, 
be looking at the footage that we were getting and, and, uh, and we were kind of communicating back and forth. He was kind of helping shape the story from, from, from the office. And we would, we would go out and kind of follow, follow some of his, his, his leads. And, and that's kind of how we broke it up. And, and, and we should say that Alex and I, um, you know, uh, for, for quite a, quite a few days, when, especially when we were out in the ride-alongs in the units with the officers, um, a lot of times it was just one of us out there with a camera and with an audio kit. So we also had two other directors of photography who helped us on, uh, certainly helped us on bigger days. Um, Roy Graf and Sean Dean Tome, who's Navajo. Uh, so we, we, yeah, we were, we were, um, <laughs> we were, uh, kind of wearing a lot of hats. All, all of us were wearing a lot of hats like we've done in the past. I, I was going to say, I think you can make the argument that the the auteur theory of filmmaking doesn't really even hold water in the scripted world. There's there's just way too many collaborative voices. I think that model breaks down even more when you get into documentary. And, you know, all the projects I've worked on, frequently you're dealing with someone who's only credited as a camera op who is, in effect, directing and guiding a scene, acting as an interviewer, choosing what we're focusing on, taking over all the sort of traditional activities that we define as as a director so i i think it's it lends itself to a more sort of uh permeable hierarchy yeah so what, 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 uh, we're, we're i was just gonna say you know ahead. like i can to 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 your question about like how does the past work inform the current work or, or the different roles inform those you know i came up as an editor and on this i was shooting a ton and if you have spent a lot of time editing verite footage and banging your head against the wall because you can't find a proper cutaway, then when you're out in the field, you know, like, oh, I better get a shot of their shoes. I better get a shot of the unit here. You know, you, you're, you're really conscious of how am I going to get the material so that the editor can stitch together an actual, you know, um, a verite scene that feels really cohesive. I, th- I was just going to bring that up because I, I, I've had a little bit of experience with that. And and I, I think the, the idea of like a marrying cinematography, if you have a background in that and editing, like just like you say, but, but also uh, do you have any uh, things where like uh, you might turn the camera off a bit early? Cause it's like, I don't want to go through that footage. Like there, there's nothing <laughs> happening. I, I'm not going to scroll through two hours of nothing. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely time. I mean, you know, you're balancing all this stuff, but yeah, at times you're just like, oh my God, this is going nowhere and turn it, turn it off. And so there's been, uh, in, um, in the episodes, uh, there's been some pretty harrowing things happen. Do, uh, do some of your, uh, filmmaking, uh, does your filmmaking brain turn off and turn into panic at some point where it's like, uh, oh, I should have got that shot, but I was just, you know, who knew what was going to happen at that point and your safety's first. And so maybe you didn't get a shot that you probably should have worrying about it's, your own safety. It's, it's the opposite for me. The filmmaking brain takes over and the safety brain turns off. Oh, that's not and good. <laughs> so you have to kind of remind yourself because when you're in these situations and you're looking at your screen, you know, you're, you're just so blind to everything that's happening around you that your situational awareness can really diminish quite quickly. And you have to, I found myself, and also the the distance that shooting something creates when you're looking through the camera, it almost makes you feel safe in a way that you're not. And so I found myself having to constantly remind myself like, no, look up, look around. Like this is a really dynamic situation, but no, I was always focused on getting the shot oftentimes to, to the detriment of the situation I was in. 
Also, that, that is that's okay. so true. I mean, you're looking at the monitor, and and you're just like, oh, uh, you know, there's a guy who's on PCP who's like raging and like. I need to get as close as I can to this, you know, and it's like, you know, I, I need a tight shot. Right. Um, so yeah, your, your self-preservation instinct is dulled, you know, when you're looking at a monitor. Hey, kind of like a, wow, wow, this movie's really good. Oh wait, that's how, oh, shit. <laughs> Absolutely. So what, um, also, I, I guess kind of speaking to that, it, do you have, because uh, I asked uh, uh, someone else who does documentaries, kind of a similar thing about uh, mental health, because what you guys, uh, you know, the the stuff with the training, you know, that's pretty cut and dried. But then when you go out on the field, the, I mean, you guys are seeing some shit and that's got to mess with your kind of mental wellness. Do you take any precautions of that uh maybe to minimize any PTSD you may see like when something crazy happens or anything like that. Well, yeah. we did talk. Yeah. We, we talked with the therapist, um, Alex and I both had talked with a the therapist and it was something that we asked for and, and then kind of pursued, you know, I think, you know, I hadn't watched the series in a couple of months and the three of us watched the series with the, the Navajo PD um, a couple of days ago. Uh, out in Window Rock, and um, and I have to say, you know, it, it it I felt like when when the series ended, I felt like I had been punched in the face. And part of it is just kind of like how you know, just emotionally, you know, strong the narrative is. I mean, it's you know, you're 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 in for a ride. But a, a big piece of it also for me was just kind of br- the br- bringing up the memories of of you know some of these situations w- which were really heavy. When the screening ended, I was like, I, you know, this really affected me and it's affecting me today. And I guess we'll just end on this. Uh, we we have a what's in the box segment and looking at your IMDb's and all the uh, filmmaking stuff you guys do. I'm I'm guessing all three of you are film nerds. Deeply. Otherwise, otherwise, why are we doing this? We have a what's in the box segment. And in the box, we have people put in movies or movies that are either personal to you or something you think is Vastly underseen. Like, oh, this is a really good one, and no one talks about it. So, what's a movie each of you would want to put in the box? Dave, you go first. Oh, there's so many. I mean, I, I, at, off the top of my head, the movie I show most to people that they haven't seen is uh, Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid, the the original '70s The Heartbreak Kid, not the the Fairly Brothers remake. That's uh, all right. It's always been a fun one to show new film friends or, or family members or uh partners um it's always fun to watch people watch that movie because it's exquisitely uncomfortable very very funny very very moving um so i recommend the heartbreak kid by elaine may i'm i'm gonna put two movies in the box Go for because it. they're sequel which is the souvenir and the souvenir part two joanna hogg's most recent um films and that's because these are films about filmmaking and if we're talking about filmmaking about processing your life through um, making films, they have a kind of almost veritate feel to them at times and just a real authenticity of emotion. And I just absolutely adore both those, those movies. And not a lot of people have seen. And you? Well, can I, can I do two films then? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah we, we can circle back to Dave and you can throw it in. Yeah, hold on. I gotta get, I gotta find a second one. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I want to, I want to plug a film that I loved when I first saw it. And I, I watch it every year with my documentary class. 
Um, it's a film by one of our, our friends, um, Jason Tippett, um, co-directed by Elizabeth Mims. It's called Only the Young. It's a documentary. It came out about 10 years ago, and it follows um, a, a group of teenagers uh, just kind of as they, they live their lives and, and go in and out of kind of certain periods in their, you know, this, this period in their life um, where they're kind of finding themselves skateboarding out in um, the, the suburbs, uh, the 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 far edges of Los Angeles. And then my other documentary that I really like, I kind of consider it one of the you know, perfect documentary in a lot of ways. Um, it's called the Island of Hungry Ghosts. Um, and it is, uh, it's, it's about the crab migration on Christmas Island, but it's, and that's, that's kind of intercut with two other stories, which is uh, the, the now it's been closed, but this internment camp, for undocumented in- immigrants um, on Christmas Island, and uh, it, it kind of tells their th- story through this uh, through their therapist. And then the third story that is is kind of intercut there is a story about these these Chinese immigrants as they feed their dead and hungry relatives. And, anyways, it's just a beautiful film, and it just synthesizes in a way that I just love. And it's it's the kind of film that kind of slowly seeps into your mind and then just synthesizes those are my two all right and dave did you have did he find a second one yet oh oh um another one i guess i would tell people to watch a lot if they haven't seen it and this kind of fits into quasi documentary at least in terms of the feel of it aesthetically is uh michael ritchie's film smile from 1975 not the uh there's a horror film that came out last year called smile this is the 70s Smile by Michael Richards, the film he made before the Bad News Bears. That's a that's just a a great sort of funny but searing uh, satire about uh, the the beauty pageant kind of culture in America. All right, well, th- those are all great picks because I, I I've heard uh, the Heartbreak Kid and Only the Young, and that's pretty much it. So those are great picks. Check them um, out. Yeah, and so uh, Navajo Police Class 57 comes out October 17th and October 18th. Look forward to watching the rest of it. It's pretty riveting so far. So congratulations to all of you, and I hope you take care mentally and physically (laughs) and other uh, documentary (laughs) endeavors. Thanks Thanks very much, Eric.